Heavenly Father, I, I come before you and I thank you very much for this day, for everybody here that's just gathered together to worship you, to receive your word, and, and to give you honor and glory. I humbly ask that uh, you clear everybody's minds and our hearts and just make us ready, including myself, to receive uh, what your word is able to teach us. And I also ask that uh, you receive all the honor and the glory today, that people leave here not thinking how well or poorly I did, just how great you are. I ask all this in your name. Amen. Right. Who knows how to play the game Follow the Leader? Children's game. Yes. Good. Good. few of you out there. Um, it's more than I could say last week. I'd forgotten entirely how to play one of the uh, most simple games on the planet, so uh, a trip to Google fixed that up, and it, it is an all right illustration to the sermon. So for those of you who are like me and did not know how to play uh, Follow the Leader, it's a children's game. The first child in line is the leader. Everybody else behind him goes along following the same route the leader does, doing everything the leader uh, does. So if the leader spins around three times, jumps on his head, or whatever it is, everybody else has to do the same thing. Uh, you get kicked out if you can't follow the leader. The last child in line is the new leader. And you think, well, it's kind of a silly game. It is. It's pointless. It doesn't have any sort of consequences for even tomorrow or later that afternoon. But especially in Hebrews, the leader we follow is vastly important. Um, I think that's true throughout all of history, even right now in your own life, whatever uh, ambitions or bosses or idols or whoever it is you're following will ultimately take you somewhere and usually determine your experiences along that way of following. Um, Even that kid, if you ran through a patch of poison ivy, if you were a hardcore follow the leader fan, you would have to do the same thing. So we're going to be looking at two different leaders, uh, the one present in Hebrews chapter 4 and one who is going to serve as my illustration for the sermon as a whole, a great leader of history, one of my personal favorites, in fact. So we'll go ahead and start there. I want everybody to imagine for a second that you are no longer here um, in the congregation. You're no longer members of Orchard Community Church. You are a uh, resident of ancient Carthage. All that blue there is the uh, territory you control. This is a long way ago, back in uh, around 280 BC. Okay? Rome doesn't even control all of the Italian peninsula yet. They're still kind of emerging to be that superpower. So here you are. You are Carthaginians, and you are intensely proud of your culture. In fact, like all great civilizations, your identity is bound up in your national civilization. Not only that, but you are incredibly wealthy. You have a reason to be proud. Notice how all your territories on the shore, you are making a lot of money through your overseas trade. Not only that, but you control the Western Mediterranean. Rome doesn't have that power yet. You are basically the rulers in your own sphere of influence. Feeling pretty good about yourselves, yes. So you're going along, you're happy, and then war with Rome starts. This is a 23-year-long conflict with Rome. And at the end of it, after heavy losses on both sides, you eventually fall. Think about that. Think of how proud you sec- uh, a second ago you were, just how amazed you were at your own wealth and your own power. And you fall, and now your thoughts are turned away from your national pride, and now they're turned to your brothers and your fathers and your grandfathers, whose tens of thousands of bodies litter the shores of Sicily. The foam there is now turned red with their blood, and now you can only feel shame and humiliation instead of pride. And the terms of peace with Rome immediately after this are devastating. They are, in fact, designed to cripple you to a 
such a degree that you can never rise in defiance of Rome ever again. So you are desperate at this point. You are desperate for a leader to rise up, to call you, and more importantly, enable you to get where you want to go. And your ultimate goal is the subjugation of Rome, the restoration of your own pride and honor. And 23 years after that war, that leader finally emerges. Uh, Do we have any history buffs? Does anybody know who I'm getting to here? Second Punic War, Elephants, Hannibal. There we go. Thank you. This guy. One of the greatest underdogs in all of history. Think about how you are right now. Your, your fleet is all but destroyed. You are crushed. You're crippled economically. Your morale is broken. And this guy comes along saying, I will lead you and enable you to take on Rome. This is a guy that you need to follow. Now, this is kind of the, the message of Hebrews 4. This is kind of what we're leading into here, except the parallel breaks down because Hebrews 4 doesn't have a lot of hatred and violence and war. But... The idea is the same. In Hebrews 4, we've got a leader we're called to look to. And you, as a Carthaginian citizen, are looking to this guy to get you where you want to go. So before we get right into our actual text, uh, let's do a little bit of uh, background for the book of Hebrews. Uh, We don't know who wrote it exactly. don't even have an exact date of when it was written. Uh, But we do know is that it was written to Hebrew Christians, uh, Jewish uh, converts to Christianity. They worshipped God in uh, the religion of Judaism, converted to Christianity, and now they're undergoing persecution. Things are getting a little bit harder to follow their new leader. And they've got this goal, this thing called an eternal Sabbath rest, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But as they're following Christ to get there, they're starting to struggle. They're starting to wonder if he's really all he's cracked up to be and if they shouldn't just go back to Judaism. And this is where the message of Hebrews as a whole comes in, saying, don't you dare. Christ is sufficient and he's superior as leader. So this is where we are. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. I'll give you all a second to a turn there. This is where we're going to be for most of the morning, so you don't have to go flipping around a whole lot. All right, so Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need." hope you all see a bit of a problem right from the outset there. It starts with a, um, a therefore. And as I said before, you've got to kind of find out what that therefore has been placed therefore. How do we get to this point in uh, uh, Hebrews? So we're going to back up a little bit to Hebrews 4, 9 to 10. And there remains then. It's pretty much the same thing as a therefore, so we're not going to keep backing up. We, we end up all the way back at chapter 1. Um, but basically in Hebrews 4... 9 to 10, he reaches a conclusion, the the Sabbath rest. And everything before this in chapter 4 is kind of his argument, his Jewish reasoning, his use of scriptures to get us to this point. We're just going to take it for granted that what he's saying here is true without going through all that reasoning. So here it is, Hebrews 4, 9 to 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Um, 
referring to the whole generation of Israelites in the Old Testament, getting to the promised land, the land of rest, who died because of their example of disobedience and um, disbelief. So we have this resting place. This is our goal. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying to the original audience. This is where you're going to. This is what remains for you. What exactly is this Sabbath rest? It's not a resting place. It's actually really cool. Uh, Sabbath rest does not refer to a place that you go to lie down. It refers to almost a, a state of being, or in some sense, uh, a state of activity. Its, its literal definition is to observe or to celebrate the Sabbath. See, this is referring to an eternal state with God, no barriers, celebrating and worshiping and resting in God. That is awesome. That is a great destination. This is another way to put it. We went over this last week in Revelation as the series was closed. This is kind of what we're looking forward to, put into a little bit different wordage here. Uh, Revelation 21, 3-4, this is John saying, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you get this sense of urgency to want to get there? This is an amazing place that we're headed to. this This is everything you could hope for and more. Now, see, as a Carthaginian, your ultimate destination is to finally put Rome in its place, and you need somebody to get you there. It's, you can't do this on your own. You're, you're hopeless. Your fleet is gone. You can't cross the Mediterranean. You're kind of stuck. As a Christian, we're in the same boat. We want to get to this place, the eternal Sabbath rest, this place where we can be with God with no more barriers, no more crying or mourning or pain. We can't get there without following the person who takes us there, Jesus Christ. So this is where we come back to our main text. Looking at it through these lenses, this is our leader who's being described here. This is where we're going. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the first title that he gets there, this great high priest, this is the leader that we follow. This is kind of building an image in the mind of the audience, in our minds as well, of who we are actually following. It's really important to know who you're following because, like I said, it determines where you end up and your experiences along the way. So the first title he gets is the high priest, and he is sufficient as high priest, as, as I like to say, because this is his qualification of being our leader. See, the high priest, his role was to mediate between God and the people. Obviously, there's that sin barrier, but the high priest had this very special role of mediating between the two. See, Jesus Christ is special as a high priest as well because he was the only one qualified as both the priest doing the sacrificing and the sacrifice itself to atone for everyone's sins for all eternity. He bridges that gap able to cover our sins and allow us to get direct access to God. See, as high priest, we have that direct link to God himself because of Jesus Christ. That is part of what makes him the perfect leader. The other title he gets is Son of God. It doesn't just stop with great high priest. He's also referred to as the very Son of God. And this makes him superior to any leader, certainly more superior than Hannibal. Notice that he's described as ascending into heaven. 
He's depicted in Revelation especially sitting at the right hand of God, having all authority in heaven and in earth. The point trying to get across here in Hebrews is that there is nothing greater that we can put our faith into. As the Son of God, we can hope for no other or no better leader. Now, what is this leading up to? Look at the very end of verse 14 in chapter 4. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. There's a call there. There is an instruction for us to be doing something, and the reasoning behind that is because Jesus Christ is who he is. So because Jesus Christ is our leader, he's the high priest, he's son of God, he's both sufficient and superior, we can live out this call. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. It's a really simplistic verse, very very simple idea, holding firmly to the faith we profess. But the more I looked into this, the more I realized there is a lot more to this verse. Um, it's in fact very active, it's very hard, and very challenging for me especially. See, Let's go back to Hannibal. What did it mean to follow Hannibal? If you were to take this verse and apply it, and you were professing your faith in your leader, what did that look like? It looked like this. The picture's a little small, but this is you crossing the Alps. In the winter, no baggage supply. There is no reinforcements. There's guerrilla troops constantly hounding you from all sides, and half of your army will eventually die through disease and attrition and desertion. It's not easy. So you have to put your faith in Hannibal to say, I profess my faith in my leader. That meant you followed him wherever he took you, trusting him to get you where you wanted to go. That was incredibly difficult for them. And I think it's incredibly difficult for us if we apply this to Christ. See, this phrase, professing your faith, or holding firmly to that profession of faith, has a single Greek root. It pops up five other times in Scripture. And each of those times it pops up, it'll show up a little bit different in English. Same root, though. It is a very active thing. See, professing your faith is tied to obedience. There we go. 2 Corinthians 9.13. It is present endurance with a future perspective in 1 Timothy. Same chapter in 1 Timothy. The same idea of professing your faith means being a witness for God. It is fixing our thoughts on Jesus Christ in Hebrews. And later on in Hebrews chapter 10, it is being unwaveringly confident in our hope in Jesus Christ. These are intensely active things that need to be done in the midst of crisis, complacency, the mundane boringness of life or whatever situation we're in. We need to be obedient. We need to be persevering. We need to be unwavering in our hope of Jesus Christ. See, if you're going to say, I profess my faith in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean you admit to being a Christian when you're asked. It means you're obedient. It means that you are pressing on regardless of where your leader is taking you. Now think about this. Think about when you're in a crisis. Think about when you hear the worst news you could possibly hear. Or in the midst of following your leader, he takes you where you don't necessarily want to be. Think about maybe how you would have reacted if you were a soldier in Hannibal's army crossing the Alps. You're sitting around a campfire except maybe you might not even had a campfire to give away your position, so you're just sitting there with a bunch of your guys freezing. What thoughts would be going through your head? Is it worth it following this guy? Sure, I want to conquer Rome, but at what cost? Wouldn't it just be easier to seek refuge in maybe one of the neighboring tribes or maybe just to you know cut loose with a pack of bread and, and just run for it? See, it's hard to follow our leader, especially in crisis, especially when we're taken through something like Job that is incredibly painful. It's exactly what we have to do, though. 
Now, who you follow is incredibly important. I hope you get the sense that Jesus Christ is more than qualified to be your leader. But you need to remember that you're going somewhere. So your leader is leading you to somewhere. To follow him kind of implies that you're moving to some place. Now, your leader determines where you end up. The next verses in chapter 4 here, verses 15 and 16, kind of give us the sense of where we're going. And that's what we're going to go ahead and look at right now. Where are we following Christ? And just like this pattern that it pops up over and over in Hebrews, the author will give a reason and then he gives the command. See up in verse 14, he says, we have a great high priest. Because of that, you can hold fast to your profession of faith. He does the same thing here. He describes the high priest and says, because of that, you can do this. So we're going to look at why we can follow Christ. Right here we go, verses 14, or excuse me, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So there's the reason. This is who Christ is. Now because of that, verse 16, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Christ is sympathetic. That's a great title. He's sympathetic as a high priest because he was tempted and tried in literally every possible way. So there's no temptation that we've gone through that he doesn't know about, he hasn't experienced. Because of that, I I think he's certainly sufficient to be our high priest, to be our leader. He's able to empathize with us. But I love how it doesn't just stop there. He is enabling us to keep going, to keep following him, because Christ did not get conquered by sin. He's empathizing with us. He suffered under the temptations, but he didn't give in. He is superior in that sense and is qualified to help us. And I know these are a lot of really big and complex ideas I'm trying to shove in a couple uh, sentences, but here's uh, an illustration. Imagine you're in a pit, pit you can't get out of. And imagine that Christ comes along and gets himself down in the pit. He's able to sympathize with your situation very well. He's right there with you. He's suffering the same things you suffered with. The difference is, is that Christ went into the pit knowing he was able to both get himself and you out of there. That's what makes him a leader worth following. That's what makes him superior and sufficient. Now, this is where we follow Christ. This is approaching God's throne of grace, kind of our, in one sense, ultimate destination, that eternal Sabbath rest has an idea that's kind of bound up in this verse as well. Now, this is not quite as ambiguous as it sounds. Um, It's referring to God's throne of grace. Well, if you're a Hebrew, you would have immediately thought the Ark of the Covenant, right? The mercy seat, the very uh, symbol of God's presence among his people. This is very important to realize because back in the Old Testament, when you approached God's throne of grace or his mercy seat, you had to do it under very meticulous and careful preparation and only very specific times and specific reasons and circumstances. When we read this verse and we say, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidently or or even boldly, as some of your translations will have it, you can't read that as us coming into heaven, kicking open the doors, saying, hey God, aren't you lucky that I'm here? My job is I'm having a few issues over there. You know, feel free to make that a little bit better. My car's it's kind of going on the going out on me. Could you get me a new one or just fix this one up? Or you know, really, my life could just use a few tweaks here and there. This is not us doing that in any respect at all. This is us coming before God for mercy and grace. This is our direct access to God. Now, to put this into perspective, because we're called to be doing this. Let's just try to get an idea of how weighty a prospect this is, our access to God. 
these people, the Hebrews, having a very Jewish background, obviously, would have thought, well, if I were an Israelite in the Old Testament, I wanted to gain access to God, I wanted to worship him, I wanted to beseech him for mercy, you'd sacrifice. You would sacrifice, you would bring it to the priest. All right? You weren't in the courtyard, you weren't in the holy place, you weren't doing any of this yourself. You took your sacrifice, you slaughtered it, you brought it to the priest, and he took it from there. That was where your access stopped. That was it. Now, if you were the priest, you got one step closer. You got to take the sacrifice into the courtyard. You got to sacrifice it, offer it up to God, sweet-smelling savor, and you were just a little bit closer to having that direct link to God. But that was where it stopped. You didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies. You didn't get to go near the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you were the high priest, the one person out of the whole nation who once a year got to enter that room, only after meticulous preparation, very long and tedious um, work beforehand did he get to go in there. And when he went in there, even then there was this burning incense creating a great smoke that still separated him between the Ark of the Covenant and him. For us to be called to go before God's very throne of grace is a huge deal. Something we can't take lightly. Something that we need to recognize. That's where we're ultimately going to. But something we even now have access to through Jesus Christ to help us along that uh, ultimate goal that we're looking towards. Now, take note of what we're looking for. I love how it says we're going to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. This is not us going to God, like I said, to get stuff we want or even stuff we need. This is us getting mercy. And you think, well, why do I need mercy? I'm a Christian. My sins are covered once for all. And that's true. Absolutely. We still need to recognize our need for mercy. See, we're sinners. We, we still screw up. We do things that we shouldn't. And it's not showing a lack of faith in Christ to continue to ask for mercy and for forgiveness. Rather, I think we're showing faith in God's, actually Christ's, continual redemptive work. This is an ongoing thing where he's promised not to just to call us to this eternal place. He's also enabling us to get there. We need to show our faith by coming to God for mercy constantly. In grace, um, I preached a sermon on grace using First Peter. And uh, for those of you that were here for that, I hope that at least one thing you were left with is that grace is not fuzzy. Uh, I used like this idea of a cotton candy grace. That is not at all what's present here. Uh, grace is something very strong, something that you can hold fast in. This is God's divine help for you when you ask for it, just here, waiting to be taken, waiting for you to trust in God and ask for grace in a time of trouble something that we really need to take seriously. Not with this sense of gravity that we should be afraid to approach God, but with confidence when we sin even. We need to stand up and go to God and say, I need your help. I need to be enabled to get where you're leading me. This is what a great leader does. He calls and he enables you to go where he is leading. See, Hannibal took the offensive against the Roman Empire. You followed him, and by the way, for 15 out of those 17 years of war, you occupied or pillaged or burnt some of the best and most fertile regions of Rome. Things were looking very good. It seems like you're following this leader is finally paid off, except that this is kind of where the parallel breaks down. This is where Hannibal kind of falls short of Christ by a long way, because the very last battle of that war, just when victory was right on the very tip, it was just right there waiting to be taken, 
the lines break. The Roman soldiers flood in behind, surround the army routes, and then Hannibal flees in self-exile in the terms of peace that time around were so much worse. In fact, you are incredibly worse off than what you had started in the first time around. See, this is the difference between Hannibal and every other leader and Christ. Because we don't have to worry about him letting us down in that sense, or in any sense. He has promised to get us where we're going, that eternal Sabbath rest, this eternal destination with God. And it's an amazing thought to think that not only does he call us there, but he's also the one pushing us along the way, helping us to get there as well. Let's go over this verse just one last time here with all these ideas in our head. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what does this even look like in our own life? We haven't really addressed some of the practical application. Holding firmly to your confession needs to invade every area of our lives, even in your workplace. What does that mean? That means obeying God instead of your boss if it comes down to it. Or that means suffering under whatever injustices you might have at your workplace with this perspective that you're following a leader who's taking you somewhere ultimately much better. It's not easy to have an eternal perspective in your current circumstances, but that's exactly what we're called to. Professing your faith is being able to bear the burden of life with this eternal perspective. It's hearing the worst news you could hear. It's going through this boring, mundane, Monday-to-Friday existence, and even in that, still being able to say, yes, I profess faith in my leader, and I'm still following him regardless of what's going on. And this is what really gets me, even, is that when we sin and screw up and humiliate and shame ourselves, we are still called to confidently approach God for mercy, for forgiveness, and for the grace to keep moving forward and following him. We are never left alone in that sense at all. Now, this is it right here. We need to make up our minds every day. Every decision we make as to what and who we're following. Whatever Hannibal is in our life leading us to whatever ambitions or desires or uh, incomes that we're going after. We need to choose between those things and ultimately Christ, the great high priest who is leading us and enabling us to get to an eternal Sabbath celebration. If you all would pray with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much that you are a great and, and worthy leader, somebody that we can put every ounce of our faith and hope into. I thank you that not only have you called us to this place that we can never hope to get to, but you're enabling us to get there. I humbly ask that uh, you remind us constantly that you are pushing us along, that you're calling us, that you're enabling us to follow you. And I also ask that uh, we do make that decision, that we choose to follow you in spite of whatever life is throwing at us or whatever life is offering us. I ask all this in your name. Amen.